interceding for us. And that, Lord, even when we don't know what to say or how to pray and we're at a loss, even, Lord, when, when we feel like we almost don't believe anymore, we thank You that the Spirit is interceding for us with groans and utterances that are inexpressible. We thank You, God, that You are the One who's carrying us in this salvation. That, Lord, You call us to participate, but even our participation is empowered by Your Spirit. And so, Lord, we feel like little babies being carried along by a loving Father. We, we can't walk. We can't talk. We're, we're helpless spiritually, except that You sustain us. So we praise You this morning, our great Father. We praise You, Jesus, our great High Priest. We praise You, Holy Spirit, the Comforter who lives within us for this great salvation. Lord, encourage us as Your people. Help us to know what an awesome salvation it is that You brought to us. Lord, we pray for this church. We pray Your blessing on it. We pray, Lord, that You would strengthen this body. We pray that You would bless this body, first and foremost, with a greater knowledge of the Gospel. Lord, I pray that the Gospel would sink in through all the pores and crevices of this church. That we would just be a Gospel-soaked people. That the Gospel would dictate how we relate to each other. That the Gospel would be what we want to share with others. That the Gospel would be the core of our theology and our thinking. Help us to understand Your Gospel, that You've come to save sinners. And Lord, I want to pray for this body, for those who are uh, struggling today, for those, many are sick, many are going through difficult times, some are lonely, Lord. I pray for uh, Tony, for his healing. I pray for Ken and Jenny for their comfort, for Lethia. Lord, we pray for Rita's healing, for Orville's healing. Lord, I pray for Richard and Maura, that You would sustain them through the fiery trial they're experiencing. Lord, I pray for others in this body that I don't even know of who are just here this morning and they feel the crushing weight of life upon them. Lord, would you sustain them and lift them up this morning by your Holy Spirit. May they go out of here encouraged, not by the music or by the speaker, but because they've come face to face with Jesus himself. Lord, I pray for those who are asking honest questions about these things. Those who haven't quite come to the place where they would call themselves followers of Jesus. But Lord, they're asking honest questions. I pray, Jesus, you would answer them. That it wouldn't be something the pastor says or some, some verse or, or rather some uh, track, but it would be you speaking through your word that people would be able to say, I know this is true because God himself has spoken to my heart. And so Lord, bless your word now. Bless your body. Strengthen us by your word. We need you. Be with us now in this time through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we invite any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church, which you can find through the door over here by the piano. And with the rest of you, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We want to welcome those of you who are uh, down in the overflow worship room. There's a worship service going on here. We've got another worship service now via closed-circuit TV through the magic of modern technology, and it's going on down there. So if you, if you ever come... I don't know. Is there a kids' choir? Wow. They're all looking at me the way I'm looking at them. Um, I don't know. Uh, if there is a... Maybe there is. Uh, how about this? Want the third through fifth graders be dismissed to the potential kids' choir, those of those who wish to participate in it, and if not, you guys can all just come back in, and that's fine. But the rest of you open your Bibles to Luke chapter two, oh, chapter 1. It's on page 1013 in your pew Bible.
We're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. For those of you just joining us for the first time this Sunday, we're glad that you're here and we pray uh, that you'll be blessed today. Uh, We're studying through the Gospel of Luke, just begun a couple Sundays ago. I had a great week this week. I don't know if you had how your week went. I went to two Red Sox games this week. I went Friday night and Saturday night. Someone just gave me tickets and then someone else gave me tickets. And, you know, I didn't want to, you know, make them feel bad, so I took them both. And I mean, you know, it, it was great. I mean, Timlin last night, I mean, he was, just, he was just a stud. He just shot down, you know, those guys batting, which is awesome. But, and, you know, I'm not even really a big baseball fan. I, I, don't, I don't really follow sports. You know, some guys, like, follow it really closely. I, I just don't. I've never been that way. I enjoy it. But, you know, it doesn't matter. Even if you don't know anything about baseball, I mean, who doesn't just love a day at Fenway? I mean, it's, it's just a phenomenal experience. There's so much energy, there's so much excitement and joy. Uh, it, it's a real blessing. Okay, so I'm guessing there is no kids' choir. And that's okay. Starts next week. There's the word, so there is. All right. We got the memo. Thank you. Um, you know, but, you know, Fenway, it's kind, of, it's kind of a weird experience as well. Like, you know, I, I was totally into it, I'm enjoying it, but then there's a part of you that kind of steps back and says... This is sort of bizarre. You know, if the hypothetical alien from outer space were to come down to Fenway and try to figure out what was going on, <laughs> and the Fenway sits in the bleachers, presumably in the center field, you know, bleachers, because that's where all the freaks sit, and, uh, you know, back there and with all the, the hooligans, and, you know, trying to figure out what is taking place here. I mean, 35,000 plus or minus people crammed into this little park and paying a lot of money to do it, you know, whatever tickets are, 40 bucks and up, to sit on uncomfortable little wooden seats. And, you know, they're wearing hats, they all have bees on them, and, and they paint, some of them paint their faces, and, and they're screaming and yelling and they're singing, you know, take me out to the sweet Caroline, you know. They're singing all of these songs. And, you know, people are just having a blast out there. And in, in, in the center of it all, apparently generating all of this enthusiasm, is a handful of men swinging a stick at a ball. Like, you know, it's bizarre. And, and I think it might be tough to explain to the alien why everybody is, is so into this, what this is all about. And I wonder sometimes if someone who's new to the church, or, you know, this church or a church, might feel like that alien coming to Fenway. Like, what is going on here? (laughs) The last time I checked, this is Sunday morning. Isn't that most people's day off? And and yet we've come here at 8.30 in the morning. Well, some of you 8.45. And uh, (laughs) some of you 9. But but you're here. It's morning. It's your day off. And we're cramming into this little space. And we're cramming our cars into an an overstuffed parking lot. And we're putting kids into full nurseries. And and people are coming in. They're cramming in. And and then, you know, we pass this plate around. And people are just putting their money into the plate. You know, some people uh, are are disciplined. They're giving like 10% of their income. They're putting it in that plate. And it's like, what are you doing? And, And then half of the time we're here, we're singing. Half of the service is just people singing and clapping and, you know, bouncing along to music and some people raising their hands. And if you were, you know, coming in from the outside and you really hadn't had exposure to church, there's got to be the question like, what is happening here? Maybe these people are religious freaks. Maybe these people are are zealots and fanatics. So you start looking around at who the people are and you're like, no, you know, it's public school teachers and accountants and VPs and electricians and 
stay-at-home soccer moms from Hanover. You know, that's, that, that, that's who you see around you. It's like these are just regular people. So what's up with it? I mean, I mean it needs an explanation. And so like that alien you know, coming to Fenway, uh, I think people can come to church and be, you know, I, I realize something's happening here, but, but what gives? Someone explain this to me. Well, today we come to an interesting passage in the Gospel of Luke. It's the story of when John the Baptist was born. And it is also sort of a strange series of events. It's a series of bizarre, marvelous events. And, and like church and like Fenway, it kind of demands an explanation. Like, what does all of this really mean? There's something significant taking place, and we kind of wonder what it is. And the reason I tell you that story and make the analogies and stuff is because the answer to the question in Luke, what does all of this mean, is the same answer to the question, what are we doing here in church? What's all the hubbub about? It's the same answer, even though it's two events separated by 2,000 years. And so look with me at uh, Luke chapter 1. We're going to study verses 57 to 80. This is the story of John the Baptist's birth. And you'll notice that it has two sort of pieces to it. Verses 57 to 66 is uh, the narrative of John's birth. It's prose. And then verses 67 to 80 is a song that John's dad sings as praise to God because of John's birth. And that's poetry. So you have a prose poetry pattern, which we saw last week in Mary's uh, section too, if you remember that correctly. So you see sort of Luke's literary style here. Um, And this is the story of John the Baptist's birth. And for those of you who may be uh, new to the church and haven't been here through our series, you remember that there's there's a backstory to this. Uh, there's this guy named Zechariah. He's got a wife named Elizabeth. They're elderly. They've never been able to have children. They're an infertile couple. And this angel comes to Zechariah and he says, hey, guess what? Your wife's going to have a baby and and you're going to have to name him John. And Zechariah just doesn't believe the angel. He says, well, how can I know this is true? Can you give me a sign? And the angel says, okay, here's your sign. You know, he can't speak. Until the baby's born, you're not going to be able to speak. And that's the sign that you'll know this is true. So it's kind of a disciplinary sort of sign on, uh, on Zechariah. So now we fast forward nine months. It's time for this baby to be born. And that's verse 57. And notice in this story, there are three marvelous things that take place. The first is a marvelous birth. It says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. So, a a marvelous birth. A baby born to an elderly woman who could never have children throughout her life. And suddenly, she's however old she is, 70, 80, and it's kind of one of those National Enquirer kind of stories. You know, 70-year-old woman gives birth. Like, ah, I can't believe it. But there it is. People are amazed. And then the second thing that's amazing is in verses uh, 59 and following is an amazing naming of the child. Look at this. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, which was a Jewish custom, according to the Old Testament. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father. So apparently, not only can Zechariah not speak, but he probably can't hear either. And usually, muteness and deafness kind of go together. So they're making signs to him. You know, what would you like to name the child? Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. So we have a marvelous naming, a marvelous birth, and now a marvelous naming. Because typically in those days, uh, it was the custom, especially with the first child, 
and a son, you would name the son after either usually the father or the grandfather. So this is bizarre. You know, they finally have a son, and it's this amazing birth. You'd think they would name it after the father, just because it's such an incredible thing. Instead, they go, no, his name's John. And, you know, everyone's like, uh, so you don't have an uncle named John, grandfather. Who's John in your family? There's no Johns in your family. And, and so they ask the father, and they say, you know, who's John? And, or what do you want to name him? And he writes on probably his, these tablets covered with wax, and, and he writes, his name is John. And everyone's amazed. It's an amazing naming. So this is a really strange series of events. And then it's followed by the coup de grace, this, uh, this amazing loosening of Zechariah's tongue. Suddenly, Zechariah can speak. So you have an amazing birth, an amazing naming, and then this amazing miracle at the end. Verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Suddenly he can speak. And probably this was a huge shock because, you know, nine months of silence, people got used to it. You kind of get used to it. This guy can't talk. Sure, Elizabeth really got used to it. Maybe she really started to enjoy it. Um, And then suddenly after nine months, you just kind of assume, all right, he can't speak anymore. We've all gotten used to that. And he's he's speaking. He's praising God. He's, you know, singing. He's, I gamble. He's talking. And everyone's like, wow. And so people are looking at this saying, what is going on? Something's taking place here. This weird birth, strange name. Dad can talk all of a sudden. What does all of this mean? And so they're crying out for an interpretation of these events. It's got to mean something. And specifically, they're asking the question in verse 66, who's this baby going to be? What is this? And so like the alien at Fenway or like the newcomer to the church, you know, they're sort of asking, what does this mean? What's the significance of these events? And as I said before, I think what's important about this passage is that the meaning of John's birth is the same meaning as why we get together here every Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, and sing and clap and just seem to be into it. Why are we doing this? And the answer is the same. And in a word, the answer is salvation. We've come to experience the salvation of God. And John was born to announce the beginning of the salvation of God. And so we're part of the same salvation story. It's just John was kicking it off and we're like, you know, however many innings into the the thing until Jesus returns when the salvation is complete. But we're experiencing salvation. So look look at the next section. As I said, in verses 67 and following, we shift from prose into poetry. And and this is uh, Zechariah's song. It's called the uh, Benedictus. Uh, Mary's song is called the Magnificat. This is often called the Benedictus. Uh, And Zechariah now sings. And in his song, he's basically giving an interpretation of the events. So everyone's asking, what does this mean? And in Zechariah's song, we have the answer. Here's what it means. And notice uh, that Zechariah's song really falls into two parts. There's verses 68 to 75, that's section 1. And then there's verses 76 to 79, that's section 2. We're going to look at those two sections of his song. And, And in the first section of his song, Zechariah gives us the meaning of these events. God's salvation has finally come. That's what it means. So let me just read it. I'm going to read 68 to 75. And what I want you to do is kind of mentally underline the different places where the salvation of God is being proclaimed. Okay? Here we go. Verse 68. Here's the song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and redeemed His people. That's salvation language. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So the great news is that God's salvation has come. That, that that huge distance between God and us caused by sin is now being closed. And specifically, God is closing the distance. That, that even though we've been running from God, God is overtaking us. And finally, He's here. God is on the move. God is coming and He's going to save. That's what's the great news. That's why we're here rejoicing because God has found us. You know, we think we've turned to God, but really God turned to us and God is turning us to Him. God is the one pursuing us. God is saving. He's on the move. And so that's why we rejoice. Now notice two things about this salvation. As we look back at that section we just read, there's two aspects of this salvation. The first thing I notice is that it's a, it's a long-awaited salvation. In other words, this salvation isn't just something new. This has been a long time coming. This has been a story that's been progressing for centuries and millennia. In fact, you could say, if you want to sort of almost err in oversimplification, that the entire Old Testament is the story of God pushing forward his plan to save a people for himself through the Messiah. That's the whole, you know, you want the, the Old Testament in one sentence? That's it. God is, wants to save a people for himself through the Messiah. And the whole story, Old Testament is just kind of the story of events that lead us to Jesus. It starts way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first blow it. They fall from God's grace. They sin. But God, instead of destroying them right there, which they should have deserved, God says, you know what? I'm going to start a plan of salvation. And he says to Eve, I'm going to give you offspring. and I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of, of Satan. And, and your, your offspring is going to crush Satan. In other words, your offspring is going to destroy him. What does that mean? Well, we don't know yet. It's going to, we have to sort of follow the story. And then there's Abraham. And the, and the promise comes to him. And then the promise comes to Moses. And then to King David. And then through the prophets. And so the whole Old Testament is this story. And like a good story, it gets clearer and clearer as it goes along what the story's about. Until finally at the time when Jesus is born, you know, we've got so much of the story. It's that the Messiah is going to come. That God is going to close the distance between himself and people and bring us back together. And he's going to do it through the Messiah. So... That's it. It's a long-awaited salvation. That's why it says in verse 70, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, or as it says in verse 72, 72, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. So what's taking place here is not something random. It's a long-awaited salvation that's finally reaching culmination. The other thing I notice about this salvation is not only is it long-awaited, but secondly, it's portrayed primarily as a rescue from enemies. Did you guys pick up that theme? It's sort of painted in terms of God saving us from those who are hostile to us. Again, look back at the text. Verse 69. He raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now that horn is like you know, a symbol of strength and power. So there's this kind of this war going on. Uh, verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. 
So it's a long-awaited salvation, and it's a salvation that's portrayed in terms of rescuing from enemies. So there's this distance between us and God, and in between us and God are all these enemies that are kind of you know, keeping us apart. And God, like a mama grizzly bear, is on the move, and he's just knocking enemy away after enemy. Boom, boom, I'm going to get to my people. Boom, boom, until finally God gets to his people. That's how salvation is being portrayed. Really, God is a warrior, is, is kind of the theme here. God is this warrior who puts on his armor and he goes to battle for his people to rescue him from all the enemies. Now, who are the enemies? It's vague at this point. It doesn't say. And I think it's purposefully vague. And and, and so as the readers, we kind of wonder, who are the enemies going to be? We might think, well, maybe the enemies are the Romans because the Romans had occupied... Jerusalem and Judea and most of the world around them at that time. Maybe, maybe this is a revolution text, like, like God's going to throw off the Roman Empire. Well, you know, we'll see. And for those of you who've read Luke, you know who some of the enemies in Luke actually turn out to be. The enemies, who does Jesus go to battle against? Sickness, disease. He goes to battle against death. He goes to battle against sin. He goes to battle against demons. He even goes to battle against the religious leaders, those Pharisees who use their religious position to enslave people rather than using their religious position to point people to God. And so in all these things, Jesus is going to war against everything that separates us from God. That's what salvation is all about. That's why Zechariah is going bananas. (laughs) That's what all those events mean. And I'm telling you, that's why we're here in church every Sunday, because we are experiencing in our lives, in the modern world, that same salvation of God as God is knocking the enemies away and drawing close to us to bring us back to himself. That's what salvation is all about. I want to tell you something, people. The most important issue you ever have to face in your life is this. Where do you stand with God? That's it. Nothing else matters in comparison to that issue. Trying to pay your mortgage, trying to find a spouse, trying to lose weight, trying to get a new job. I mean, all the things that we just spend all of our mental capital on, that stuff is so trivial compared to this issue. Where do you stand with God? Because if you have God and and you've been reconciled to God, well, who cares how much you make, I mean, relatively speaking. And who cares whether you're sick or healthy, relatively speaking. If you have God, you have him for eternity. This world is short. This life is short. And conversely, if you don't have God, I mean, I don't care if you're, you know, famous, rich, healthy, educated, beautiful. It doesn't matter. Because you're headed toward a dark and hopeless eternity. What does all that mean? It's nothing. And so this is the most important issue with which we have to do in our lives. Where do I stand with God? And the amazing message of salvation is that God is coming. He's coming. He's drawing near. He's breaking through the barriers. And He's saying, I'm coming to be with you, my people. I want to save you and draw close to you and remove everything that would stand in our way. That's what salvation is. So no wonder... We're here worshiping. No wonder we're just drawn like flies every week. You know, drawn like moths to the light. It's like we can't help it. We've got to get together as the, as the company of the redeemed. 
We get together because we just want to praise God. And we want to look at each other and, and see that, yes, God is at work in your life. And yes, God's at work in your life. And we encourage each other by our worship and our praise. Because we're just so stoked about where we're headed. We're so excited about what God is doing. One of the um, churches I visited this summer when I was on sabbatical, it was a great church. It was a Jubilee Christian Church in Boston, in uh, Mattapan. Uh, and actually the pastor spoke here, past, uh, Bishop Gilbert Thompson. Remember when he spoke here? And uh, Gilbert Thompson, he's awesome. It, it's African-American church. And, you know, it's kind of like what you think of when you think of a, the stereotypical, you know, black church. I mean, it's very expressive worship. It's very, you know, the music is, you know, expressive is kind of an understatement. It's aerobic worship is what it is. And, uh, and, and you know, people are so joyful. It was such a friendly church. They just, we just felt so loved just walking in there. People talk to each other. You know, it's, it's, you know the, the black church is wonderful. It's very interactive. It's not the preacher preaches, but the people talk to you and people talk to each other. It's just a wonderful experience. So anyway, uh, it, halfway through the service, they had communion. They had worship. They had communion. And then the pastor they, they just started playing music and he just started dancing. People were just clapping and he's just up there like doing this, you know, I'm not there yet, okay, so <laughs> I'm still a little starchy, all right, so you know you get <laughs> I have rhythm issues, all right, so but but the, you know he's just dancing up there, and you know it's like what you know it's like the offering, communion, the worship, and then the pastoral dance number, apparently it's sort of the liturgy so but but you know he, then he gets up afterwards and he says, "I bet some of you are wondering why we dance he goes. Well, you know, we're wondering why you don't dance. <laughs> I was like, that's a good answer. <laughs> you know, I mean, the point isn't dancing or not dancing. The, the point is, has the reality of what God has done for me in Jesus hit me yet? Or do I still live as if this world was it? I mean, it's so sick. It's like, have I, have I really understood the greatness of my salvation? Have I understood the treasure I have in Jesus? Do I realize that God has come to save me, who least deserves it? And, and as that reality of my salvation soaks and seeps and creeps into the crevices of my heart, you know, it transforms me as I realize what God has done for me in Jesus. I've said this before, but growing as a Christian does not mean moving on past the gospel to something better. I think it just means letting the gospel move deeper and deeper into your soul. It's sticking with the basic message of salvation and fleshing that out into all of your life. That's why real Christians never get sick of hearing the gospel. We just don't get sick of it. We keep singing about it. We keep celebrating in communion week after week. It hasn't gotten old yet. Because it's just it's a bottomless well of blessing. So that's why we're here. That's why we're celebrating. That's what it means. Because God has drawn near to us. He's removed the enemies. God is coming to rescue us and reconcile us to Himself. And then you get the second part of the Benedictus, verses 76 to 79. And this is where there's a little plot twist. This is where you get kind of like, you know, the movie Sixth Sense, the big whoop at the end. Whoa! You know, just flips it. And there's a strange thing that takes place here in verse 76 to 79. And here, here's Zechariah shifts gears, and now he starts speaking to his son. 
and prophesying over his son. But what's interesting in these verses is, there's a lot, actually there's a lot, I don't have time to cover everything, there's so much in these verses. But, but I think the thing I want to focus on is that we learn something else about the nature of salvation here that at first blush seems to contradict what we learned in the first section. But I don't think they contradict, but it sort of seems that way at first. Look at verse 76. It says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him. So John, you're going to prepare the way for, for Jesus. To give His people the knowledge of salvation, here you go, underline this, through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. Tons of Old Testament imagery here, but we don't have time to get into it. And in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. So what do we learn about salvation here? It comes through the forgiveness of sins. In other words, salvation implies God uh, expunging my spiritual record, removing my guilt before Him so that God looks at me as if I, I'm innocent and, and good and righteous. Which is kind of interesting because it seems like then you, you have two different, perhaps even conflicting portrayals of salvation. Salvation in the first half is more, I guess for lack of a better word, external. God is getting rid of all those enemies that are me, between me and God. He's coming to rescue. Whereas salvation in that verse, in the second half, it seems to be a little more internal, doesn't it? it it's, it's not so much God getting rid of the enemies out there. It's more like he's getting rid of the sin in here. Like the problem isn't some oppressive foe. The problem is now Jeremy's own heart and Jeremy's own sin. And, and so it's like, is salvation external or is it internal? Is it removing enemies or is it forgiving my sins? And the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> you know, both and. Of course, it's both. And, and let me, I, I think this is how it works. Sin is the root problem. And out of sin comes all of the other enemies. They're the consequences. You know, why do we have disease in the world? Why do we have sickness? Why are governments corrupt and oppressive? Why do the families go bad and school systems go bad? And, you know, why are all those enemies there? And the answer is because of sin. That's the cause, and those are the, the, the effects. Uh, I mean, go back to the Garden of Eden. We touched on that earlier. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What went wrong in the Garden of Eden? I mean, it was sin. I mean, there's no other explanation. I mean, there wasn't disease in the Garden of Eden, so you couldn't blame it on cancer or something. People weren't dying in the Garden of Eden yet. There was no government there to oppress and corrupt. There was Satan, but even then he wasn't like this dominant power. He was just more like the snake kind of throwing out temptations. It's not like after the Garden of Eden when he became sort of the prince of this world. So, so you know, what went wrong in the Garden of Eden? And the answer is just sin. But then out of sin was birthed every evil and every enemy and every destructive consequence. Out of sin, you know, because we live in a fallen world, we have anxiety and depression and violence and, and terror and everything evil in this world that separates us from God and it feels like our enemy comes from sin. So the two are integrally connected. That is why when the Messiah comes, he doesn't come proclaiming a revolution against Rome. No, no, no. That's just dealing with the, the symptoms. You know, if any of you here are physicians, you know, you don't just deal with the symptoms. You don't just keep giving someone Tylenol. You've got to get to the root. You've got to figure out what's causing the symptoms. And you've got to fix that. And so Jesus came, yeah, he dealt with some symptoms, he healed some people, but more than that, he got to the root problem. He came to deal with sin. Because it's sin, my sin, that separates me from God, that causes the need 
for me to be saved. Or to put it the same thing a different way. Uh, Let me ask this question. Here's another way to look at it. What's our greatest enemy? What's our greatest enemy? Of, Of all the enemies God has to remove so that we can be reconciled to God, what's our greatest enemy? Is it cancer? I mean, of course not. You know, that's big. Is it, you know, um, corruption in government? Is it our version of the Roman Empire? What's our biggest enemy? Is it Satan? No. We have a bigger enemy. You know who our biggest enemy is? God. Because we are a sinful people in the presence of a holy God. He is our biggest enemy. We deserve His wrath and judgment. The biggest threat to my soul and my life is God Himself. I deserve His his destruction because I've I've dissed God. I've sinned against Him. I've given God the silent treatment. You ever given someone the silent treatment? You ever got the silent treatment? Oh, I hate the silent treatment. You know, (laughs) my wife doesn't give it to me. Thank God. But uh, maybe you've gotten the silent treatment from others. I have from other people. It's painful. You know, the silent treatment is like you don't talk to someone. And when you walk in the room, you don't make eye contact with them. You know, if they're right there, you're like, mm-hmm. You know, and you just kind of pretend they're not there. And it's like, it, it, it's, it's basically kind of saying, I'm going to play like you don't exist. I'm going to pretend you're a non-existent being. And that's the silent treatment. And, and I'm telling you, that's the essence of sin, is giving God the silent treatment. It's where we live in our little modern world as if, mm-hmm, you know, he's not here, and I don't have to listen to him, and, you know, I don't have to give him glory, and I just live my life, and, you know. It's so repugnant. It's so evil. And God, to defend His glory as a good God, brings the force of His judgment against sin. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the judgment of God. And that's where we find ourselves. But the amazing story of the Bible is that rather than coming with that sledgehammer of judgment which I deserve, God comes with nail-pierced hands to rescue me. It's amazing. Look, look, look at verse 70, uh, 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Because God, not only is He holy, He's also merciful. And so God comes to remove our biggest enemy, which is Himself. God, it's hard to put in your head. <laughs> but God Himself saves us from Himself by sacrificing Himself. That in the person of Jesus, God is coming to reconcile me to Him by taking away my sin and thus making me righteous in the eyes of God. I'll tell you what, that's why we worship. That's why we sing. That's why we should be dancing. That's why we should be celebrating. Because God loves me so much that He died on a cross to save me from the judgment that I deserve from Him. It's amazing. Who's ever heard of such a thing? It's never been heard of. But God did it. God did it. And so I celebrate that God, who used to be my enemy, has become my Savior, my Father, my, the lover of my soul. That God, who used to be my judge, has become my Redeemer. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. That's why we celebrate. That's why we rejoice. And you know, we see that salvation working out in our lives, that forgiveness is now like kind of radiating outwards. And we see that same forgiveness that we've experienced is starting to change our marriages. 
and it's starting to change our relationships with our kids. And it's radiating out and it's affecting our neighborhoods. And we feel the shockwave moving out into our extended families. And it's going out into our workplace and our schools. And, and we feel this thing that God is doing in us, which is just blowing us away, is like, like a shockwave. It's moving out. It's going outward. And we see it around us. And we're just blown away by this. We just feel like, you know, just little straws and, and a fire hydrant's going through the straw. You know, we just can't believe what God is doing in and through our lives. That's why we gather, because we're just amazed at the salvation of God. This is why we rejoice. So may God's knowledge of His salvation just seep deeper and deeper into your soul and my soul to not take it for granted. And the last thing I want to say is there's still room on the bus. The plane is not full. It's, it's on the runway, ready to taxi and go take off, but it's, it's, God hasn't given us the order to take off yet. There's still room. There's still room in the kingdom of God. There's still room, there's still enough salvation and grace for you if you've never experienced God's forgiveness and grace before. You just have to come to Jesus and say, I am a sinner. I need salvation. Jesus, rescue me. Change me. And man, you're going to experience the joy of God just like a grizzly bear coming at you to save you. And rescue you from your sins. What's keeping you from Christ? Jesus stands ready with His arms open to embrace you. But we all have this stuff that we're holding on to so that we can't embrace Jesus back. What are you holding on to? What's so valuable to you in this world that you think it's better than knowing the Savior? I mean, come on! Just drop it! And, and embrace the Savior and receive His salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and worship You for You're our Savior and our Redeemer. We thank You that though we were enemies of God and He was our enemy, that God, in Your mercy, You changed Your attitude toward us so that You might be your, our Savior. Lord, You sent Jesus to die for us, to pay the penalty for sin, and then You sent the Holy Spirit in us to change our hearts. So Lord, we praise You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for Your great act of salvation on our behalf. Oh Lord, we love you. We worship you. Help us to take this message to the world and to believe it more deeply. Lord, I pray that every person here would have a deeper drink from the wells of salvation this morning. Amen.